0: Thank you so much for sitting down with me here. Oh, it's great, man, really.
1: This is all my pleasure, especially who you are. (laughs) It makes me think my life has been worthwhile after all, having a suitor like you. So it's all like, whoa. Good day. It's a good day.
0: (laughs) You were just discussing uh, how you've been a professor of philosophy now for 43 years you're a legendary yeah. institution at this school and um, uh, and you were just discussing your moment in the Air Force uh, where you encountered uh, existential right. uh, philosophy for the first time uh, and somebody had given you a book it right. was, it was that was the starting point right. uh, could you talk about that idea of yeah. you have to Discover who you are. Leave the group. Right. Discover who you are, and then return to the group. How did no? no that,
1: I think that's an important part of the existential view of the world that we can either we can either join early on the ideas that our parents and the culture we're raised in all just join into them and then go along with that particular flow. Uh, we can try to find a way to step out of it. Often, you know, traditional ways have been just going to another culture, going to another uh, part of the world, or something, and looking at how other people how other people live. Right. I can remember. This is the, <laughs> one of the short stories. You, I don't know if you remember, Matt, but it was in one of Tim O'Brien's books, sure. The Sweetheart of Song Trabong. Mm-hmm. Remember this young girl yep. who was got, you know, sort of by her boyfriend who was stationed in Vietnam, yep. got smuggled in, and then here she was, this 18 year-old girl from, you know, middle-class suburb outside of Chicago Mm -hmm. and and gets over to Vietnam, and of course he's trying to protect her, you can't go out and do it, but she goes down into the village, and she sees the different houses, a lot different than the suburbs of Chicago, and the children running around naked Mm -hmm. and everything and all that, and it begins to work on it, right, on her mind. There is a different way to live your life, Mm -hmm. right? And and that, of course, we're not going to give away the ending of the story, but that, of course, leads to her actions in the course of the story. But it's something like that. Mm -hmm. For me, it was a book that a, a baseball manager gave me on a baseball trip was, you know, I don't know, he was sitting, he always sat in the front seat. I always sat near him because I liked to watch him. Mm-hmm. The guy had this uncanny ability of looking at things. He never let anything get by, right? I mean, that's probably why he was such a good manager and probably why he was such a good student when he was It was a student. He was always aware, right, of what was going on. And then he just, he pulled out of his bag he had there and he said, Wilcox, come here. And so I, I came up to him. He said, "Here, here's this book. I want you to read it." And so I, I took the book and I went back. I didn't get to it for a little while, but when I did get back to our, you know to the dorm, to a location, I started reading it. And in there, it was it was Wilson. He was the name of the author, uh, Colin Wilson. He began to lay out the existential argument. I'd never heard of it. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I never even had heard at that point of existentialism. So he started laying out the existential argument. And the existential argument, as you mentioned at the beginning, has that you have to learn to step outside. If you're going to know who you are, if you want to find out what's going to make you go, right, what's going to give you uh, the zest Right, that that uh, that 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 we need in order to go forward. You step outside, and examine the world from a different perspective. In that way, and then that will lead you to look inside, right? Because you're no longer being captured by the environment. It'd be like Plato's. You know, the allegory of the cave where you're strapped to a chair mm-hmm. and you've got to look at the images on the cave wall, that's it. That's your whole life and somebody else is producing those images. right? So you don't know what other reality there may be. So, but when you do that, then you may have that moment of insight where you can then look inside and say, what would you like to do? It isn't that what it what that did is changed my life from being uh, probably a full-time air force guy to becoming a student mm-hmm. right because after i became a student and i got into deciding that i wanted to major in the humanities and particularly into english and and then as out of those studies that I began to think that, wow, oh, I think I'd like to be a teacher. Because as often happens, teachers begin to be influenced by watching other teachers. Hmm. I had this one teacher that I loved, right? He was he in those days you could smoke in the classroom. He would sit on his desk in front of the classroom, held his cigarette between his little finger and his ring finger, and he would sit there and smoke his smoke his cigarette and talk about James Joyce, right? Talk about Ulysses or Finnegan's Wake. He'd just go on. He didn't even know we were there, I don't think, right? He was in his own little I said, God I' like to get into that world that's the kind of world I would like to get into that's sort of world that he uh he had captured in the way he communicated it and that in another teacher the combination of the two who you and these were different times right and then when I went to school he would sit in his desk and he he liked talking about classical literature and he had a uh, a bottle of of raw uh, of, of whiskey, that he would pour a glassful, mm-hmm. and he would sit there and just talk about classical Greek Greek literature and sip his whiskey through the whole <laughs> hour that we were there. He and he was mesmerizing. Really, both of those teachers were mesmerizing. <laughs> you know, they had sort of gotten into. I said, "Wow." I think I'd like to try that, right? That sounds like, that seems like a good good thing to do. So in a way, that's, those two teachers created that kind of in a world that sort of entered me. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah, that feels pretty good. I like the way that feels inside of me. Mm-hmm. And so maybe I, I think I'd like to express it in that way. So I and I did, and so finally when I graduated, uh, I, I got a master's, and then I went to California, and out there, uh, and this happened by chance.
0: Right, the role. Right. Of the I, I had not been
1: trained as a teacher, mm-hmm. right? As most school systems require. Some kind of educational training. But out in California, they were desperate for teachers mm-hmm. at that time. I just, just a chance, I walked down the street, and there was this big auditorium with a big sign in front Teachers Want It. <laughs> I said, What is this? So I walked into it, and there were all of these tables. Every county in California had a table, and somebody sitting at it you know, trying to get people to to sort of sign up to go to that particular location. Wow. And, and so I just wandered around and looked at them, and then I came to this one and I had a chat with this one guy who seemed really interesting, right, who had a similar kind of a kind of you know experiences that I had in terms of he was now the principal but as a teacher that sort of thing so I said yeah I'll sign up <laughs> and I signed up and there I was the next fall that was during the summer sometime Then that next fall I was in a classroom walked in a classroom and there they were these they were all juniors like 17 year olds right and you and I threw them out catch her in the rye Yep. And they loved it, <laughs> right? They, they really got, they really loved it. I said, hey, this is fun. They're really going to like what I like. Right. Right? And the, you know how that works, right? Yep. Once you get students liking what you like, it's a great experience, right? You know you feel really good.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is that okay? Oh, it's that too and long? No, it's, it's I <laughs> just a few more. No, these are all great.
0: Um we were chatting earlier about how, uh, in this era where humanities budgets are being slashed, yeah. and you know what? What's the need for philosophy anyway? What right. What is your? Uh, yeah. Can you give me an impassioned defense of philosophy, oh, or at least God, speak to its no. importance? It, it's
1: so sad, right? That yeah. really, this is one of my, you know the things that really I find very on on something that undermines your faith in a culture in a society that can't recognize the role of the humanities in a young person's life maybe i mean they get a lot of the moral values from their family yes and but sometimes the family is a little limited with getting the wider range of experiences with other cultures, and so that the humanities always opens up the door to other people. And what it teaches us through its stories, through those beautiful works of art, the music, all of those things—the ballet, the opera—all it teaches us empathy. Right? Isn't this what it's all about? Empathy, you know, sympathy, you know, that connectedness. This is the ultimate aim.
0: Is of, that the goal of the uh, Yeah, humanities, of humanities, I empathy. think.
1: I mean, obviously, each one of those works produces order, or else we wouldn't be able to understand it, right? We'd have no way of understanding that order, say, in literature of time and space coming together, and you and I are familiar with time and space so we can understand it. But once that's, that's, that concept of order is clear to us, mm-hmm then we read the story and we can either we can even shed tears it can be so well communicated right and with the empathy that we can really feel it tim o'brien right Always. says what's all about he said hey what is my what is my narrative about you just turn up the the heat a little, right? Just mm-hmm. turn it up. You may say, this is an exaggeration to me. You, this is, he said, but you turn it up, and then you feel what I feel, mm-hmm. right? That's what you, And that's what all art is, isn't it? You try to feel what the artist is feeling mm-hmm. so that then you say, yeah, this, isn't that what we're trying to do? Feel mm-hmm. what's inside each other, and, and that humanizes us. That's the humanities, right? That's what the humanities are. If we lose it,
0: what are where days? are we going
1: to get the empathy and the sympathy? Mm-hmm. right? Where is that going to be produced? Religion seems to have been eroded. There are not as nearly as many people involved in, in deep religious thinking and action, which they could obviously get it mm-hmm. in, in that context. So there's not...
0: There's no other sort of yeah. You don't get empathy If, if we physics, don't, get don't get it empathy. fully
1: developed at home, mm-hmm. then our uh, chances of getting it may have diminished mm-hmm. a great deal. So, I mean, to me, the humanities humanize us. Mm-hmm. And if we don't get it, then we can go around dehumanizing people. Mm-hmm. We can see people in terms of monsters or whatever they may be. And then once we have dehumanized them, you know what human beings are capable of doing, right? <laughs> to other human beings, right. once they've dehumanized them in some way, right? It's a it's a very difficult era, I think, mm-hmm. that we're going through, trying to find that ground again that can bring us together rather than sip separating us.
0: Well, and you wrote an entire book or an essay. Uh on that topic uh, which I'm holding here right. philosophical inclinations values in an age of fragmentation um, were you so alarmed by this notion of fragmentation that you decided to put words down or what What was the starting yeah. point for this book
1: no I I worked with my daughter you know I had finished a memoir mm-hmm. right for my uh, grandchildren mm-hmm. that I wanted them to read uh, that was all about humanity. <laughs> none of which thus far have gone into the humanities. Right? Oh, really? No. So the, whatever I said didn't make much of an impact anyway than them growing up. But anyway, so the, I, I said, well, and, and, you know when you retire. This is this is something that I would urge anyone to do. You've got to have projects. Mm-hmm. You've got to have a project. You've got to get something you're working toward, a goal you're trying to complete. Mm-hmm. So after I'd finished the memoir to my grandchildren, I said, listen, I think I'd like to write an essay to my former students. I would like to try to get engaged with them again in some way. And that, I, then I said, well... My daughter, working for Caritas, this uh, charitable organization that produces uh, homes and places for the homeless, I said, well, why don't we work on this together, right? Mm -hmm. I'll do the writing, and then you will get it published by, you know, whatever sources you can, and we will then track the possibility uh, putting a letter in it, in the book, mm-hmm. that if the students decide they want a copy, they will get the book and the letter, and the letter is a kind of, kind of urging to donate to this organization, mm-hmm. charity, right, that sort of thing. And we'll use this as a kind of an experiment. After all, I've taught humanities for 43 years uh, here at the College of general Studies at, at Boston University, I caught it. I taught it, and it 's all been about the humanities let 's see if the humanities in fact had any impact on on my students right so we 'll send them this letter to see if they respond we don 't care if they respond with a nickel or a dime doesn 't make any difference right as long as they respond right that would be the critical thing so And then I said, well, how is the best way to try to engage those students? And so, you know, I'd come to the conclusion, as anyone who looks around the world, it seems to be fragmenting out there, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem to be coming together. It's sort of like, you know... The Big Bang, in which all the pieces of the universe are flying apart, and it seems like the world we're living in is doing a similar thing. But I said, "Well, I'll try to create an essay. It won't be long because I know I'll lose them. <laughs> <laughs> this, this can't be a book. This has got to be an essay that will that would sh- sort of emulate what we did in class." Mm-hmm. So, maybe they would think, oh, this is a little bit of nostalgia. Maybe I can go back to a moment in the class when we talked about these things. Mm-hmm. So, I organize it along the way that I try to organize it in class mm-hmm. by starting with the big philosophical questions, right? Metaphysics. Metaphysics, what's reality? Epistemology. How do we know that? All those questions, right? right? We try to answer. Every philosopher has to has to encounter, right? This right. is what every philosopher begins with, right? Whether it's Plato with his allegory of the cave, with all of his meta- the metaphysics there, and then Socrates with his epistemology, how we're going to know it, you know, that sort of thing. All the every philosophy. So we'll we'll go back and just. Redo, the philosophy course.
0: On that note, sorry. Who is your favorite philosopher?
1: It's still Albert Camus, oh. right? The existentialist, mm-hmm. because he's you know I've come to believe in him. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a man of the mod of what well, not the modern world, but of the twentieth century and the turmoil and everything of the twentieth century. How he stood up. It's with his existential philosophy, as well as his novels. I mean, he, remember, he won the Nobel Prize for literature. So isn't this the perfect wedding philosophy and literature? Isn't this what we're trying to get to in this, uh, in, in a kind of a humanities mm-hmm. course and in that way? So no, he is so that... Where was I? <laughs> this is an 83 really year old mind-wandering... <laughs>
0: As you were uh, standing up the book to be. Uh, oh, so yeah, right, right. I wanted to
1: put it. <laughs> I wanted to try to put it in a, a kind of logical order mm-hmm. so that. and see each of the pieces as a chapter in our lives. Yep. So it sort of has a narrative mm-hmm. as well as a philosophy, right? Literature and philosophy mm-hmm. to coming together in a little bit. And I. Dramatically, but a little bit, and then leading them through what we had studied, mm-hmm. right? And then, probably the most uninteresting part was my inclinations, mm-hmm. what I had come to understand in terms of metaphysics or epistemology, or, you know, politics or morality or whatever it might be, right? So I called it inclination. Because mm-hmm. I firmly believe that there is there are no absolutes, and so you you are inclined. I'm just inclined, and I don't expect you may be inclined to have the same. But it doesn't mean that someone else can't be inclined to believe something else, and we we re- would respect it, right? It we we would respect that mm-hmm. that belief. So I I'm trying to avoid the idea that hey, Wilcox has the truth, right? But he doesn't.
0: Are there any truths?
1: No. There are right the truths we create ourselves are out of our experiences and what we you know and what we've learned right the knowledge we've got and that we, we live by that truth but that truth is never permanent right it's always on the on the very verge of changing because new evidence may come in mm-hmm. right something else may show up on your doorstep that would change whatever truth you think you've been living by. And But you're willing to do that, right? You're always on your toes. You're never, you know, stalwart, stuck in a corner that, right. and holding that corner and saying, no matter what, I'm going to be this. If you I don't do think, that,
0: what does that lead to?
1: Well, I think that, that leads to a kind of intellectual and existential death mm. because you're not going anywhere. You're not paying attention to the world you're living in. Because that's what existential requires of you, and when you and the world is always changing, right. and so something might show up what, that would produce that change.
0: Is this what is the difference then between this and process philosophy? Process, the, the sort of the. the Concept that the only—I mean—is summarized very badly. Just the only constant has changed, but that uh the Platonic concept yeah. is, is the cornerstone of existence. Right.
1: No, see that—that that would be Plata- uh, Plato's idea, right? Okay. That there are these these forms right. that are permanent and timeless, and so that education will get you in touch with those forms. Right. right, that's what your education tries to do and then you live your life from those perspectives which would be absolute mm-hmm. right? and then you bring them down and live your life that way where the opposite of that way is that there are no forms there are no absolutes out there and so you're living in the moment and in the moment there's always a possibility of change mm-hmm. things occurring that could change your thinking so and that, a, that
0: you should be flexible to these and adapt yeah, to them. See, I, I understand yeah, I
1: extend the way I would my inclinations are uh, you gotta be you gotta be adaptable, right? You've gotta be flexible. You gotta you gotta go with that flow. Mm-hmm. Right, with that particular flow. That's, why
0: not resist the flow?
1: Why not why well, I'm sorry?
0: Resist it. Why not stand firm? You can, and a lot of people do, don't yeah, think? they? They build of,
1: walls, right? right? They'll say, hey, I want to build a wall, right. and I want to hide behind it. Right. And so I'll resist all of that. I'll resist whatever change right. that may have an Im- impact on my thinking, and, and so, because I don't want to change it because I think I got the truth. Right. But what existentialists say, you, you don't really have it. It's a, it's a fluid thing. Mm-hmm. Right, it, it's like a good scientist. I mean, this is where science would believe, right? They they collect their data, they make their judgment, they publish it, and we act on. But they're always saying, "Hey, it's not final.
0: Subject Some new change, data kind of,
1: can, yeah. can come in, right? right. A new some new data may show up, and we'll we'll have to change it, yeah. right? And so you keep on flexible, keep that flexibility
0: right. in
1: your thinking. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's sort of like. This is what humanities do, it does, right? You read a different story from someone from a different culture and get a different perspective and someone from another culture and get all these different, you say, no one has got the truth here, right? They all, I mean, it's all interesting. It just shows you a different perspective of everything Mm -hmm. in that world, Mm -hmm. right? It's sort of open mind. Mm -hmm. That's what we're looking for, right?
0: but then what is is what about the are there any downsides then with the if there is no absolute truth isn't this sort of as exciting and enlightening it's also i think yeah. can be terrifying if there is oh no yeah absolute no purpose, right at the moment yeah of right. this this yeah. i am simply an no no and creature, that's the man.
1: and that may be one of the price the price you may have to pay by living in a world like that in the in the you know in the in the world right right in the existing world because it all can show up on you right, right? it all and, and that can be very frightening in that way and, and and in a way we live in a world like that terrorism right it can you know, we know when to, how do we know when and how we might get an impact from that right no but but that's still the world right It's exactly what the world is. And you still have to live with terrorism. You still have to live with it. It isn't that you know that you can. You try to diminish it as much as you can, but it's still there. Right. And you make a philosophical decision of how you will live with
0: it. Right.
1: How do we live with terrorism? Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing.
0: To pick up on just two themes from your essay. Uh, you wrote about happiness and then happiness how many people do you think are happy (laughs) that sounds like a question you would ask in our class um and and then you wrote about death after happiness yeah
1: well yeah because i'm there right (laughs) because i'm there i'm the door is knocking at my door right that's okay right i'm 83 for goodness sake (laughs) it's gonna knock anyway
0: to, to tell the first one first. Can can you... You write the sentence that I it find interesting. We live in a culture that seems to be obsessed with synthesizing pleasure with happiness.
1: Yeah, no, that that's the idea that I need to buy a new pair of shoes, right? Right. right. I rent a... And that'll make me happy. Pleasure. Yeah, right. that pleasure. And I think we got to separate that. It isn't that we diminish pleasure, mm-hmm. right, because... We, but we may put it into a different context. We may say, "God, I get a great deal of pleasure from seeing that film, mm-hmm. from going to see that boy. I love that, or going to that ballet, or going to that opera, or reading that novel, or reading that poem." Right, the the pleasure principle that we all have, right? There's no question about that, right? you know Epicurus was right about that right there's a pleasure principle there's that line we're on pain and pleasure's over here right and we want to get out of the pain side to the pleasure side so it's the choices this is the existential choices we make Mm -hmm. about how to get to that pleasure side Mm -hmm. and so if we are trapped in a materialistic world and have materialistic values we might see money as, a, as that pleasure principle or buying something or, or even going to, takes money to go anywhere right. or something like that. And my argument would be nobody wants to hear that. My argument <laughs> would be it. you want to take your pleasure in the humanities. right? Go to your library. Pick up a book. Sit down and read it. That's what you need to try to develop. If people haven't been trained in the humanities, it might be hard for them to do right. I mean, it's sort of understanding with the diminishing of the humanities how the culture has become, at least from my perspective, more materialistic.
0: Mm-hmm. Intensely right? so. Yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, and this is you know this is the difficulty. So my solution is not a great one here because people haven't. You know, I can't remind them that, you know, you remember how good it felt to read a novel or see a beautiful film or something like that, sitting there for those couple hours that you were doing it, how much pleasure that gave you, you know, and you weren't even thinking about your pain, even though you may have had physical pain. You, you Your story, the narrative, takes you beyond it in that sense. So it's sort of like, yeah, that's the, the world we live in Cries out for humanity more than ever, right? In order to produce that kind of experience Mm -hmm. for people, so that they don't fall in. It sounds like I'm a little bit anti-capitalistic here. (laughs) You don't fall into the materialistic trap, and if you fall in there, your capitalism has won the game, Mm -hmm. and you're hard to get out. Mm -hmm. You can get in debt. You know, you got to, you know, students get in debt. I don't know if you were in debt, Matt, when you got out. I mean, that's a tough hole to put yourself in at the beginning of your career like that, right, to do all those things. See, I I would prefer that we have a political system that takes care of their students, Mm -hmm. takes care of them, takes care of their sickly, Right. Health care, that sort of thing. I know I'm sounding pinko. I know I'm sounding a little like uh, he's got. He grew up in the wrong, in the wrong, reading too much, you know, mocks or something like that. But no, I think that it creates a more humanistic society when everyone on those basic needs level, you know, getting their housing, getting their you know their food. Getting their health care, getting their education, I mean, I love it in Sweden and Norway and Denmark. Right? you talk to the people there they, they got those things taken care of, mm-hmm. and so they have a higher potential, I think of happiness, and we always see the United Nations produces their list of countries every year who are who they think to their you know whatever however data they collect is the happiest. Guess who's up at the top every year, <laughs> right? Norway or, or Sweden or one of those countries. I mean, it isn't that we're way down on the bottom. And sort of where we're sort of like fifteenth, I think, thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth, and that range. Yeah. But you can see there's a lot of unhappy people mm-hmm. in this country, mm-hmm. and part of the unhappiness is that they've gotten trapped in the materialistic circumstances that they find very difficult to extract themselves from. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those circumstances are the basic stuff that your know, government should be providing, I think. Well I know that that's my politics, right? I don't want I don't want to, don't want to about, that's just know. my inclination. You're right. There, yeah. There's no absolute to that. Right? <laughs> no absolute
0: to that. And the second topic um, death, which is death. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know, I know no. death is why we study philosophy it is the greatest of the existential questions it has always been the mystery that philosophy and poets have tried to solve
1: yeah. and then
0: you say very personally you end the book on a very personal note in my case, I know that death can knock on the door at any time yeah. now with stage four cancer it is only a matter of time and I am working on readiness. I do not plan to go gently into that dark night. Yeah.
1: No, no, no. No, I know that's there, right? I mean doctor <laughs> quite told me. I'm very lucky that the new the new meds I should have I should appreciate technology more than I do. Right. Because when I was diagnosed two years ago they gave me four months. The wow. doctors, say, you got four months' workouts, go home and get all your stuff together so that you don't leave a mess behind you, right? <laughs> and, you know, these are all doctors over at BU, so I knew some of them. Right? Okay. that's sort of thing. But anyway, so, but then this clinical trial. They said, well, we can try something, right? You can use you as a lab rat. You want to be a lab rat? I said, well, may, maybe better than being dead, right? And that sort of thing. So they put me in this clinical trial, and it sustained me for two years now. That sort of thing. So, but the idea of of death itself I've obviously visits someone like me pretty regularly, right? You think about it pretty regularly, but the most important thing is if you got time, right, and you recognize, you can sort of get life-ordered. Mm-hmm. You can do the things. It allowed me to finish that memoir, mm-hmm. which I, was something I was hoping I was going to do, and it allowed me to write that, mm-hmm. you, know, that you know, that essay, yep. that sort of thing. So it's sort of like tying up knots, loose knots that you have in your head, that you can do that. And it, in the existential way of approaching death, is that you just keep living just the way you have, try to try to do the things you do. I mean, obviously there's physical limitation, can't do everything, but the things you can do, just keep going to the films, keep going to the operas, to the ballet, right, to whatever you you know all those things you love, just mm-hmm. keep doing them, right up until that time you can't do them, mm-hmm. and then the game's over, right? And that's it. But you played the game, right? You mm-hmm. played the game the way you believed. It should be played.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No,
1: it's interesting. Absolutely. That's good, right? Yeah. We'll end it on death. End it. <laughs> that seems... Uh, that seems That's, it's, an, ending. it's a fitting way to end it, right? Because <laughs> we're all going to end up there. That's the thing. Yeah? <laughs> That's true. A thing. Very true. But anyway, it was great talking to you, Matt.
0: My last question for you is um, if there was one book that you would recommend... And yeah, to to? See, Would it be the one somebody handed uh, your friend, handed well, you all those years ago, or would it be, uh, no, I know your father? No, it, it would be different now. Okay.
1: I mean, it would be Albert Camus' The Plague. The Plague. Because that is what the that book that really defines the world we live in. We have these moral issues. Yep. I know you're doing your job, Matt, in trying to solve these moral issues. But think of the world as, as Camus does, as a plague. What do you do? You know, who, do you think of yourself and try to get out and save it? Or do you to, try to go and help those people who may have you know, gotten the plague or in danger of it and that sort of thing? It's a perfect book, right? It's probably the book that got him the Nobel Prize for mm-hmm. literature, mm-hmm. and rightly so, because mm-hmm. it's, it's really brilliant a brilliant book but that's the one I would recommend people should read Perfect. but thank well, you thank you so much oh, I always like, good that was good man